1: Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you every week by Thorn Harbour Health. Here on Well, 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 we delve into the issues impacting and surrounding the health and well-being of our gender, sex and sexually diverse communities coming to you from Joy's Victorian Pride Centre studios on Boon Wurrung Country. I'm your host, Michael Whelan, joined at the Victorian Pride Centre by my co-host, Jacinta Hennecombe. Jacinta, how are you going?
0: I'm very well, Michael. How are you going?
1: I'm very well. Um, This week we are reflecting on International Day of People with Disabilities, which was on the 3rd of December.
0: And we are now joined by Danielle Melia, who is... A holistic psychologist who has been in private practice for 12 years. Danielle is an ADHD her herself and she opened her own telehealth clinic in COVID lockdowns. The main areas she works in are trauma, burnout, relationships, and the intersection of neurodiversity, gender diversity, and sexual diversity. Danielle does EMDR therapy, WPATH assessments, and is continually educating herself to be as supportive and affirming as she can. Danielle, it is a pleasure to have you on Well, Well, Well tonight. How are you going? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you going? I'm good, I'm good. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. It's something that we've wanted to cover for a while now. I wanted to start with asking, what is
2: ADHD? So I am not going to give you a world of jargon that people can jump on the internet to find. Instead, I'm going to say just that, ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder. So it's a brain based difference in attention and hyperactivity. It's not a behavioral problem. So some brains are like Apple Macs and some brains are Windows. One isn't better than the other. We just have a world that's set up for one operating system and not really any others. So ADHD is about having a surplus of attention, not a deficit, like the name suggests. And ADHD brains are usually quite high speed, but with trouble regulating and slowing down. So I want you to think Ferrari brain, Chevy brakes.
0: Nice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And is ADHD um, classified as a disability?
2: Oh, this this is a tricky one. This is a loaded question. Technically, yes, it's a disability for now, and people will view this in different ways. You can decide whether to identify with this. Um, And when I say yes, technically it is, think of it as the social model of disability. So when the environment supports or prevents abilities from being shown. If you think of an open plan office, and you can smell someone's lunch, and you can hear three people on the phone, someone's laughing, the printer is beeping, you're trying to concentrate. This is really going to highlight someone feeling like they don't really have abilities um, in concentration and in attention and working memory. Of course, an open plan office is kind of it's kind of not great for everyone. But if you actually have neurological difficulties with certain things, that's going to make it a lot harder. I guess a shorter way of talking about social model of disability is to say if there's a problem with a flower growing, then we attend to the environment. We look at the sunlight and the water and the fertilizer. We don't just punish the flower and say something's wrong with it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great analogy that people can relate to. Uh, Obviously, with awareness building around things like ADHD um and also autism over the last couple of years especially I think um what does neurodivergent mean there's a lot more language that people are aware of um to articulate these experiences what what is neurodivergent what is neurotypical
2: if we think neurodivergent all it's technically supposed to be referring to is um a brain-based difference that is diverging from the norm um the issue, though, is that we've said just one kind of brain is the norm, and so if we are comparing everything to that, it's almost like it's almost like comparing the behaviors of a nocturnal animal to the behaviors of a daytime animal. the The nocturnal animal is always going to feel like it's failing at normal or something, but they are not appropriate norms for um, for the nocturnal animal. If that kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, and and obviously neurotypical refers to that, like, that centred
2: normative,
0: I guess, assumption of how people's brains function.
2: Yes, yeah. Uh,
1: Danielle, what are some of the key symptoms that people may notice for ADHD?
2: Um, there is such a lot and a big cluster, and it really varies between person. But the main symptoms you're going to find are... um. People having issues with executive functioning. Most people with ADHD have challenges planning, uh, doing time management related tasks, completing tasks. Sometimes they're, well, not sometimes, most of the time, there's issues with holding information in your working memory and not losing that information before you go and do something else. emotional regulation. So there can be extremes in emotion sometimes, even if people are holding that in and you can't see it on the outside. Um, Definitely issues with consistency. Um, People can be quite all or nothing. You can have incredible routines suddenly, but then kind of can't keep it up and have flopped into something else. Um, And the tricky thing here is this stuff isn't a behavioural issue, it's neurologically mediated. So people with ADHD can swing between being super focused when they're interested and when they're challenged and then unable to start or sustain activities that are considered really boring or overwhelming. So a lot of the life of ADHDers is, is constantly having to do many things to titrate their focus and attention to make it stay on for things that don't naturally motivate them.
0: And why do you think that there has been an increase in awareness around ADHD in the last little while? Is there a reason behind that?
2: Yeah, I think I think that there's there's about three reasons that are all kind of clustering together. Um, so when we had COVID and lockdowns. Um, for people all over the place, but particularly people in Melbourne because, you know, we were in lockdown for so long. This showed the functioning of people with ADHD without their usual structure. Um, Most people with ADHD, whether they know they have this or not, they've intuitively learned to tailor their environment to motivate them. So an example is if you make yourself go to the gym, so that you can be motivated by the music and the sound of the treadmill and, you know, all that sensory stuff much easier than consistently getting yourself to do it at home. So when that environmental structure fell away, people became quite aware of what was happening for them underneath. That's that's the first. Uh, the second would be teachers are a lot more aware now of what this looks like in a variety of presentations in kids, not just little boys, not just, you know, straight kids, white kids, like the the variants, people are becoming a lot more aware of um, in how that's presented. And so when parents are taking their kids to be assessed, uh, the parents are getting told, hey, you actually seem like you have got a lot of these traits too and uh, that, you know, you've learned to overcompensate because ADHD is hereditary. And then, lastly, I want you to picture this. Imagine that you have gone to a party. Uh, you don't know many people at the party, but you're a warm, bubbly, chatty kind of person. You're you're likely to just seek out other people that are warm and chatty and bubbly because you know like attracts like. So groups of friends form who are neurodiverse, whether they know it or not, and picture you know we've all got we've got a little group where they all interrupt each other but normalize it because they know what it is and they're not seeing it as rude and they normalize losing their keys five times a day and of course that's embarrassing (laughs) and people don't want to largely tell people that but if the people in your friendship group are doing that but they're also intelligent and funny and articulate and creative and kind you'll just think oh, that's okay, we all do it, we're okay. You're all just kind of telling each other, we're a bit quirky, it's fine. And then if somebody goes and gets assessed, the rest kind of think, oh, we've all been doing that and kind of hiding it but kind of not. And so if that's happening in friendship groups, again, with the hereditary thing, it's happening in families where people are like, hang on, there is a name for all of this stuff that I've just thought of as my individual quirkiness um and we are really we're in a huge wave and sadly we're not even in the peak of that wave like the amount of people that are predicted to go and get assessed is is pretty wild it's kind of a tidal wave
0: right and is it useful to get a diagnosis and go through that assessment process
2: i recently went to a conference where they spoke about the cost of not getting diagnosed. So monetarily and emotionally, huge cost because of all of the secondary and tertiary uh, issues that can come from unmanaged ADHD. It's pretty hard to feel like you are a square peg, always fitting into a round hole. It causes quite a lot of distress. And um, once you have a diagnosis, uh, just I guess a lot of people say there's a huge amount of relief that comes with that after the initial grief and kind of shock. Um, If you're studying, it means medication options might make it so much easier for executive functioning. That's all that planning and time management and scheduling and la, la, la. You can have school-based and and work-based adjustments once you have that as a diagnosis. And life can just be hell of a lot more simple.
1: And what can someone do if they can't get a diagnosis or they're waiting for a really long time to get one? Is there anything that that person can seek out to help in support of you know, awaiting a diagnosis?
2: Um, I would say if they start researching ADHD or joining Facebook groups, things like that for ADHD, it's so useful to have other people start to speak of the things that make you go, mm, maybe that is happening for me. Oh, wow, that's happening for other people. Um, I would say that YouTubing people like Russell Barkley or um, there's this there's this woman that has um, a YouTube channel called How to ADHD, uh, all sorts of beautifully illustrated, really interesting short bits, um, and she is a person that has ADHD. Cannot remember her name, but how to ADHD, if you look that up, that's really useful. Um, But the biggest one, hypothetically, start treating yourself like you've got ADHD and only look up tips on how to do planning, not forget things, organising yourself, blah, 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 um, that are meant for people with ADHD because then you've got the right tool for the right operating system, that feeling of um, starting something and not being able to sustain it, even though you really want to, is often because people are using the wrong tools for the wrong system, essentially, and then not knowing why they keep getting something wrong.
1: We were chatting a little bit about the different tools that work for different people in. Uh, in kind of setting up their life properly, I was sharing with you an anecdote during the break about someone who felt like they were, you know, quote unquote failing at life because they couldn't keep a tidy home. And they had this expectation that every surface needed to be clean and sterile and that there couldn't be things littered around. And it was a bit of a light bulb moment for this person I was listening to um, talking about Mm. setting themselves up for success by having, you know, baskets and, and laundry hampers and things in the right spaces. So when they were done with an item, it could go back into its home and that kind of opening up. Oh, this is how I need to live my life to support my ADHD. Um, Do you find that with with some of the people that you work with?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, who would think? We're never taught things like that, like have a little miniature cleaning basket in each room or a little miniature bin in each room, because then you can't leave the room get distracted by something else and be doing many tasks throughout the house and forget the initial one you started at. It's, it's really just altering the environment to suit uh, your needs, which is which is actually a lot of what managing ADHD is about, really hacking the environment to be different.
1: Yeah, I love that phrase, "hacking the environment." The amount of times mm. I've walked into a room with a tape measure and gone, "Now, what did I? What, why am I holding this? Why did I come in here?" Because <laughs> um, my brain is just on a completely different level than what my body is, <laughs> is yeah. synced up to. Yeah, that's it. Yeah.
0: Danielle, what is it like being a psychologist with ADHD yourself? Does the lived experience help with your work?
2: Yes. Yeah, I think so. So I use myself to model well, treating yourself in a neuro-affirming way. So I um, I help people to unmask by leading by example. So I'll tell my clients at the beginning when we're first meeting and I'm, I'm telling them what therapy will be like. Um, I will let them know it's really okay to interrupt me, for example, and I won't think that that's rude. I know that the thought might leave your head if you don't say it. So, like, you know, that's really okay. You don't have to put the energy into looking polite and not doing that because I'm understanding that that's not actually about politeness, it's about working memory and people people relax it at things like that. Um, they, they do say that people with similar neurotypes can relate easier. Um, you don't have to spend time creating a shared language and understanding, it's partially there. Of course, you don't need to have each particular mental health challenge or life challenge to be really effective at working with clients. However, the psychology world is really changing. So we live in a world where everyone seems to have their business on Instagram and clients are looking and and choosing at little standout things that will make a therapist feel more accessible to them. Clients seem to say... um, that I'm warm and down-to-earth and authentic and kind of do real talk and show little imperfections. Um, and I think that these traits are largely because I have ADHD. I'm sure there are about other things too, but I think that is a, a big factor of it. So when it comes to lived experience, I guess, uh, yeah, in this huge sea of you can choose anyone online now because we're all over Instagram and stuff, it may be these little standout things that make people resonate with you more
1: so yeah even that thing you that anecdote you just mentioned of saying oh well i I won't interrupt you if you have this thought that's bottled up because it's causing you distress not to blurt it out um would for some people just be like a ding great that's that's the kind of attitude i need coming into a space where i'm going to be sharing um i wanted to ask about lgbtiq Um, populations specifically, is there much research into either the prevalence of ADHD in our um, rainbow communities or the experiences of those people?
2: There is. There needs to be a lot more. Um, Sometimes the issue with research is really having quite defined variables that you're researching in a certain way. And um, we're in this huge paradigm shift around what neurodiversity is, how we define it, where we've been wrong in the past as the medical community. And if you're looking at, yeah, there's, there's so many little variables in between sexual diversity, gender diversity, neurodiversity. Um, it's, uh, it's tricky and there needs to be more.
0: In terms of, of it of there needing to be more, I guess what kind of research do you imagine as happening in the near future? Like what would you really like to see?
2: I am not a research psychologist, but what I would like to see is a lot more understanding people's lived experiences, the level of discrimination that they're facing, um, the yeah, the level of just how extra hard life is if you have got intersectional identities uh, is pretty important. But understanding this from the perspective of the neurodiverse people or the gender diverse people or the sexually diverse people um and having them do the research or at least have their input in the research feels like a very important place uh to go and that that is what is starting to happen rather than you know other people looking in it it does really need to be for us us. buyers yeah absolutely
0: um In terms of resources or services that are out there for people who are ADHDers and also identify as queer or part of the LGBTIQ plus communities, is there anything in particular that stands out at the moment?
2: Um, I notice that there's either stuff for neurodiversity or there's stuff for the LGBT community and there isn't a huge amount for both. Um, There is a book that I'm thinking of, Neuroqueer Heresies, um, by Nick Walker, and she's the person that came up with the term neuroqueer back in about 2008. Um, But other than that, uh, what I was mentioning before about anything by Russell Barkley, the lady that does how-to ADHD is pretty useful. Other than that, if you... If you're looking for um, inclusive therapists, you'll be able to type in keywords and it's it's pretty obvious in their advertising. People don't really want to say, you know, I attend to neuroqueer people if they don't. Like if if it's written up there, people are pretty across it.
0: A resource that I have seen recommended is a book by Dr. Devon Prince which is called Unmasking Autism. Yeah, obviously it's about kind of autism specifically, but ADHD and other um, neurodivergent conditions are discussed throughout the book. And Absolutely, there's, and there's actually reading that currently. Yeah, yeah, it's really great because it's all about unmasking and kind of revealing your mm. neuroqueer self, to use that term. Um, and there's lots of little tools included in the book as well for people to use. So I think that. Um, for people who perhaps are waiting for a diagnosis or to kind of access those tools to think about the neurodiversity, it's actually a really helpful little resource to get your hands on.
2: I agree, absolutely. And they've got another book, um, No Such Thing as Lazy, I think it's called. Mm. That is on my list.
0: Yeah, yeah. Really, There's some really key queer neurodivergent people who are out there creating these resources themselves, um, and really leading the way, which is fantastic to see.
1: Mm. Mm, For sure. And Danielle, outside of, um, uh, you know, print or video resources for people that have ADHD, for those people that are in their network, their family, their friends, what can Mm. the people around us do to support people who have ADHD or, or vice versa? What are some of the, the tools that you can pass on to loved ones?
2: Uh, The first thing that comes to my mind is actually letting people know what's not helpful to do. Mm. So while families mean really well and friends will mean really well, when people say things like we're all a little bit ADHD or we're all a bit autistic, um, this is pretty unhelpful. I want to compare it to something. We all pee. But if we have to pee fifteen times an afternoon, there's probably something underlying to deal with. And so when people give the oh, we're all a bit at, at sometimes forgetfulness, or sometimes not completing a task, sometimes missing the joke socially, something like that, it's it just comes across as invalidating.
0: We're running out of time,
2: unfortunately,
0: but I wanted to ask before we wrap up, what can people do if they want to find out more about ADHD or, or how can they start that process of talking about it with
2: healthcare professionals in their life? Um, they can look for someone who is trained in it, which is tricky um, because we do not have as many people trained up in it as as we would like. Um, so you'll have a doctor, a counsellor, a coach, somebody that will either say, you're like, yep, yep, this is an area of interest for me, or people that will say, mm, nope, sorry, I, I don't really know much about this. Definitely go towards people who are more informed. Um, it's funny to say this, but social media is useful to people at the moment. Please be discerning. There's all sorts of things that are not useful on there as well as things that are. Um, if you can find someone that is a lived experience person or a professional that looks like they are they are pretty across it and the things that they're saying are pragmatic and useful and non-stigmatizing and non-inflammatory, um, then that, uh, that would be a place to go as well. You don't need a referral to start that process. You just need to be able to find someone who has enough information that they can actually treat this properly because... There has been so much mistreatment of ADHD by people who have been unaware and uninformed because this is an area that uh, we poorly understood as the medical community in the past. So, yeah, my, my main thing there is don't spend time with people who are saying that they don't really understand about it. There are people out there that do. Yeah, find your way to them however you can, even though there are big wait lists.
0: Even though that can be something that's concerning, hopefully it's also affirming for people out there to know that you're not alone in going through this kind of process
2: and these experiences. So, yeah. Absolutely. And with all of the awareness and uh, how loud everyone is being about this, there is rapid training of people because, yeah, we can't get much further without health professionals being appropriately trained to manage this. Fantastic. We love to hear it. Danielle,
0: thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Well, Well, Well. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Thank you. Time to wrap up another episode of Well, Well, Well. It has been such an important episode reflecting on International Day of People with Disabilities. If there's anything that you would like to connect with or learn more about, links to information from tonight's show will be on the podcast page on joy.org.au forward slash well, well, well. And you can also listen to all of our previous episodes here as well. There's also links to support. So if anything that you have listened to in this episode has impacted you or you want to speak to someone about what your thoughts are after reflecting on this episode, please reach out for some support. You can reach out to QLife and Rainbow Door and the other services that are on Joy's support page. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Well, Well, Well.
1: It's always a pleasure to join you here in the studio, Jacinta. And, of course, massive thank you to our guests this week.
0: Absolutely. It was really wonderful to have them in studio and to be able to give their experience and time to the topics that we've spoken about tonight. So, if there's a topic that you'd like us to cover, you can also get in touch with us. Otherwise, we'll see you here on Well, Well, Well next week.
1: See you then. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 your show for LGBTIQ health and well-being. Presented by Joy sponsor, Thorn Harbour Health. For more on these topics and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website, thornharbour.org.
0: This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024 go to joy.org.au slash radioson. And remember, we all flourish with joy.